So for Veterans Day, about 13 years ago on September 11th, 2001, at approximately 8.46 a.m., there was a woman. She was leading a conference on the 96th floor when the first plane struck the tower next to her. Her fiancé was working as a consultant in that tower. She watched in horror as people jumped from the windows, smoked, billowed, flames billowed out of the building. She immediately began running down the stairwell, and she had made it down about 18 flights of stairs, so now she's on the 78th floor when the second plane struck her building. In effect, acting like a missile and a bomb going off, all of a sudden explosions everywhere when she awoke. Her assistant, who was following her, was dead. There was debris everywhere, things, and just rubble. She managed to crawl through flames and fire, burned her arms very badly when a man with a red bandana, he was in the news all over the place, reached through the debris, pulled her out of the rubble, and led her to the only functioning stairwell and left her to go down on her own while he went back in and rescued others. She crawled through smokes, crawled over dead bodies, had many people who were still in the process of being led to their last hours of life or minutes of life. A man on her way down even reached up and handed her his wedding ring and asked her to return it to his wife. Amazingly, against all odds, she made it out alive from the 78th floor. She underwent hours of rehab. She regularly battled anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, nightmares, suicidal thoughts, and all sorts of other things associated with PTSD. Her husband did not make it out. She managed to overcome all of these obstacles and would become the face of the World Trade Center Survivors Network. She would become the president, actually, of that organization. She would raise thousands and thousands of dollars to help the other survivors. She gave the first tours of the World Trade Center Museum to the mayor of New York City, to the governor of New York City, and other honored dignitaries, often breaking down as she had to relive the memories of that horrific day. She was highly admired by all she worked with and represented, even while she still struggled with her memories from that day of losing her husband and many friends. It was a true story of love, determination, courage, overcoming tremendous pain with the will to survive, except that it wasn't true at all. Not a word of it. In 2007, six years on the anniversary of the incident, her story was discovered to be completely false. Fabricated, fraudulent. She was never even there. She wasn't even in the country when the towers were struck. She never had a fiancé who worked in the other tower. She never had any affiliations with the World Trade Center. She was a fake 
her testimony was completely conjured up. Even though she did lots of great things for the survivors, she was a phony. The title of my sermon is A Beautiful Deception and the Ugly Truth. A Beautiful Deception and the Ugly Truth. Last week, I took a break from Mark 13. We're going to hit Mark 13 next week um, as we get into the study of last times briefly with what Jesus says. And I took a break to revisit some foundations, some foundational truths that we all hold like the doctrine of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, we spoke about that. This week I'm going to do something similar, is lay some foundations. Having been one year as your pastor, I want to regularly, I don't want to assume that we just know these things and take them for granted lest we forget them and stray. And so we will do something similar today, a beautiful deception and the ugly truth. Uh, the new president of the International Missions Board, David Platt, he records statistics of current research indicating that approximately four out of five, four out of five Americans claim to be Christians. Four out of five Americans claim to be Christians. Less than half of those asked attend church regularly or believe the Bible to be true. Less than half. So four out of five Americans, that's kind of, that's, we can safe to say that's a lot. So four out of five people you ask on the street, are you a Christian, would say approximately yes. Half attend church regularly, half believe the Bible to be true. So in an effort to probe deeper to distinguish true Christians, they asked who would identify themselves as born-again Christians, as if there's different types of Christians. But they found this. That of those that claim to be born again, half of them, if you look at their lives and beliefs, and they are virtually indistinguishable from the world in which they live. Some believe that Christ sinned while he was on earth. Some don't think he's the only way to heaven. Some think that Muslims, Jews, and Christians are the only way or are all serve the same God. And still others think their good works will get them to heaven out of those polled. So the researchers concluded that Christians really actually are not all that quite different from the world around them. New Testament scholars, both David Platt and John MacArthur, and many, many more would suggest an alternative interpretation of that data. Far from being that... Christians are actually not that different from the world, they would propose, as would I, that all that means is that there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people who are deceived about what a Christian is and their relationship with God. To quote the foremost biblical scholar and leading expert on human psychology and religion that the world has ever known, Quote, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And over and over in Matthew 7, we would see that there is the wheat and there are weeds, there are sheep, there are goats, there are true followers and false teachers. There are those who submit to the truth and those who twist the truth. And on and on. Those who turn to the light and those who run from the light. Those who turn to God and those who turn from God. So my hope, my aim this morning for all of you is that you would leave this morning with a firm grasp of this question, what is a Christian? And that seems like a simple enough objective. Like we would, this is like, come on, this is grade school stuff, right? But as our Wednesday night studies have shown us, there is an increasingly prevalent amount of confusion on what the gospel message even is. What are the basic tenets of the gospel message, or, or are there basic tenets of the gospel message even? There's a vast amount of confusion around this, so then it's no wonder... It's no wonder that if we can't even identify or struggle with identifying the tenets of the gospel message that there would be a whole lot of confusion about what a Christian is then. And so I hope to, maybe as to use the old illustration, as a bank teller would instruct future tellers on the authenticity and marks of a genuine dollar bill, so I would like to do the same for you this morning. What, what constitutes genuine faith? What are some of the hallmarks, the water logos, if you will? If you hold it up to the light, what will you see in genuine faith? And what will you see in false faith? And my other aim is for those of you in here who might not know the answer to that question, if I asked you to come up on stage and tell us what a Christian is, and you'd be stuttering for words, clamoring for an explanation, as most of us do when we're asked to define words, my hope is that you will leave knowing what a Christian is and how you can get in on that. So... We're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and Acts 26, 12 to 20. So put one finger in 1 Corinthians 1, put another finger in Acts chapter 26, and we're going to get rolling. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, famous passage, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's the ugly truth. The word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But, I always love that word, but, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, flip over to Acts chapter 26. What you're going to find here is this is Paul's testimony. Paul's on trial before a king, and he is now giving his testimony of what happened. Why did he go from Christian hater to Christ proclaimer? And this is a portion of it. Acts 12, sorry, Acts 26, 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And we had all fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And what is it that he's going to witness and do? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, the word of the cross, this gospel message that saves us, I fully recognize as foolishness. Lord, it is utter foolishness and folly to those who are disbelieving and perishing. But Lord, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So I pray you would show yourself powerful this morning. I pray that you would shed light on darkness, that those would turn and see God, who you would have to see. Lord, we need you to do this, and may Christ be honored, I pray. Amen. So, a Christian then, what is a Christian? What is this beautiful deception and an ugly lie? Part of the beautiful deception is that you can go on having Christ without any of the suffering and all of the promises. Kind of like our friend in the World Trade Centers, and her name was Tanya Head, also known as Alicia Estevez Head. You should read it. It's a fascinating story. So a Christian then, the word Christian is actually only used three times in all of Scripture, twice in Acts and once in First Peter. So a Christian was basically, you would guess it, a follower of Christ essentially a follower of Christ. So not somebody that followed him around literally, walking everywhere he went and doing those types of things. It was somebody who followed him in his teaching and in his message. So what 1 Corinthians 1 calls the word of the cross, or Romans calls the obedience of faith, or in essence summarized under the word, the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's somebody who is obedient and follows that word. Without going into all of the studies we've been doing on Wednesdays, basically if you examine the sermons of Acts and the apostles and things of this nature, what you're going to find is to this gospel message there are four main components to that gospel message. And you could break this up other ways, but we break it down into four you can use these like anchors or hooks, if you will. This is the content of the message, God, man, Christ, and response. 
So a Christian is somebody who believes the gospel message that we can break down with God, man, Christ response, but also who has that last one, a response. So that's going to be the structure of our sermon. There is a content of the message, and there is a response to that message that must be believed in order to be a Christian. It is not enough to just know the content. You also have to have the response. So let's start with the content. First, there is God. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is one God. He is the creator God, and he is also a holy, just, righteous judge. There's a lot more to be known about God, but that has to be present in your understanding of this God. We are, in our culture, we're kind of like shoppers. We like to shop for our religion. It's, it's, we like to blend, okay, I'll take a little bit of, of this religion, and I'll put it in my little grocery cart here because I like that, and that looks good here, and I'm going to take this. I like Hindus. That's good here. And Christianity, I don't like that part about uh, his wrath, so I'm going to take the love of part, and I like heaven, and we, we kind of just assimilate our own beliefs from all the different world religions. This is, the fancy word for this is called syncretism. So if you like fancy words, that's the fancy word, syncretism. But otherwise, it's just a mixing and matching outfit. I'm going to mix a little bit of this in that. And we think, actually, by trying to blend them all, that we are actually honoring them all. We're recognizing the good in all of them, but in reality, what we're actually doing is dishonoring all of them, because we are actually ignoring all of the tenets of what each religion teaches, which is thus to dishonor whatever God they think they are serving, and thereby, rather than honoring all the religions, we are forming and fashioning a God after our own likeness, our own image, and thereby we dishonor, actually, all the other world religions when we do this. And the words of God in Romans 1 stand true. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. To the contrary, there is only one God. We don't change this God. We don't make him after our own likeness. He is who he is. That is his name. I am that I am. The great Yahweh, and what our opinion about him ultimately matters very little. What his opinion about us means everything. Everything. So, dear friend, what is his opinion about you, this holy, righteous creator God who made you and owns you? What is his opinion about you? That's God. We're going fast. Man. Women. All have sinned. That's his opinion. All, without exception. Psalms, he said, I look to see if there are any who seek after God, who follow after God. Answer, none seek after God. There is no righteous, none righteous, no, not one. We have all broken the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every day we break that commandment. All of us, without exception in this room, break that great commandment 
every day. And if we're honest, we break the second commandment, to love your neighbors as yourself. If we're honest, most of us don't even know our neighbors, but even if we're going to say our neighbors in the biblical sense, we often don't show mercy to those who need it. So, because of our rebellion, because of our sin, our defiling of God's glory, our syncretism, trying to actually fashion a God after our own preferences, the wrath of the one true God is on everybody, and nobody likes this message. This is the bad news to the good news. Nobody likes hearing this. We hear this paraphrased hell, fire, brimstone. Man, that guy, is, I just want love and grace. Before we get to the greatness of the love and grace, we have to get to why we need the love and grace, which is this, because we are all under the wrath of God and deserve death upon death upon death for our sins against this God. Christ, God, man, Christ. This is our God. We are sinners before him. What did he do? He was born of a virgin. God, Emmanuel, God is with us. He is the word made flesh. He lived a life of perfect obedience before the Father. He died a death that was for criminals, for sins that he did not commit, what the Bible calls a propitiation. It's a wrath-bearing sacrifice. And he died brutally on the cross. That's the foolishness of the cross. Wait, you mean a promised Messiah, a Savior who dies? That's foolishness. And for my sin, what? I'm not a sinner. That's folly. But he didn't only die, he rose again three days later, proving that he was who he claimed to be, and now he reigns in heaven at the right hand of God the Father and offers forgiveness, amnesty to all who repent and believe in Christ, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Amen. So any who twist, distort, or deny this message are not Christians. a hard and intense statement. Any who twist, distort, or deny this message, no matter what they say for themselves, they are not Christians. Paul said, if I or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel than what I have already delivered to you, let them be cut off. So a, that is the basis of the gospel. God, man, Christ, and response. So, there's that other portion. There's the content. You must believe these things about Christ for that to be the gospel. And then you must have a response. And there's only one response. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and turn to God in faith. They are two sides of the same coin. What is faith? We all say we have a lot of faith. Faith is trust in Jesus that moves to action. Trust in who? Jesus. Trust in a prayer? No. 
Trust in a decision, trust in a card that you sign, trust in a priest, trust in, no, trust in Jesus, not church membership, not anything else, but trust in Jesus. Not even faith in your faith saves you. Faith in Christ is what saves you. For instance, I could look, I could be drowning, and I could see a boat, and I could see a life raft on that boat, and I can know that it's a life raft, and I can know that it will save me, and I can even call for somebody to throw me the life raft, and somebody could throw me the life raft, but that does not save me. Only grabbing hold of the life raft, putting it on, and holding on for dear life is what will save me. Exercising faith in that life raft. That's faith, trusting in Jesus, and in repentance. All true repentance will breed faith, and all true faith will breed repentance from sin. Repentance is a, not literally a stopping of sinning. If that were the case, nobody would be Christians, ever. It's not just stopping sinning. It's actually a changing of your mind and attitude about sin. Right on. We're getting with it. That's how you know we're getting down to it, right? A uh, repentance is a changing of your mind about sin. Whereas once you loved it and harbored it, now you flee from it and hate it. You feel that conviction whenever you start to do it. You're not comfortable with it. You're not friends with it any longer. Perhaps an illustration will help demonstrate both of these things. Let's suppose there is a house. Bear with us. And this house catches on fire, and your family is in there, and you, as a father, your mother, you, you rush up, you get all your family gathered, and you get out of the house, but in horror, somehow in the commotion, you realize you forgot one of your children in the second story. And you attempt to go in, but flames have already blocked the door. He wakes up to the smoke and sees the burning, and he's scared, and you're calling to him, son, son, come out to the window, and he opens the window, and you're standing down there, and he sees you, and you say, jump, jump, I'll catch you, jump. And the boy in that moment looks at his father. He knows his father is strong enough to catch him. He knows his father will catch him, but he still has to jump. And the moment he steps out of that window, his casting of himself is solely on the hope that his father will catch him. There is no other hope. And if his father doesn't catch him, he will hit the ground and he will die. Faith and trust in Jesus jumps out of that window. If Christ doesn't catch me, nothing will. So there is repentance and faith. Now, some of you will remember the story of Exodus. You remember Moses, let my people go, and he casts the rod down, and it turns into a snake, and he, river of blood, and frogs, and plagues galore. You remember that. You also remember Pharaoh had magicians in his court. Pharaoh was able to duplicate many of the miraculous workings that Moses did. 
Much like Pharaoh, many of these works of grace can actually be duplicated today. Can be duplicated. It can be hard to detect what is authentic. So now I want to, if that's the message of the faith and that's the response, repentance and faith, what then does that produce? I won't give you everything the Bible says, but I'll give you a few. So what are some hallmarks now of our genuine faith? What will it produce? And while we may not know everyone's hearts, we are given signs of genuine faith. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. So, we'll go quickly. True faith and repentance results in a changed life. Period. True faith and repentance results in a changed life. Life. If you remember verse 21, he proclaimed repentance, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. In other words, when you get whacked by the Mack truck of God's grace, you will look differently. Right? The ocean is so great and so large that, you know, as awesome as I am as pastor, when I jump into the ocean, the ocean doesn't get randied. Right? It's not like, oh, I'm not going to go in the ocean. It got randied because that guy jumped in it. No, I get totally inundated, covered by the waves, and I get wet. In like manner, when you come to Jesus and you are just dropped in the ocean of his love and regenerating grace, you look and act differently. It is a difference from death to life, from not being born to being born, from heart of stone to heart of flesh, from being lost to being found, from being in darkness to being in light. Things are different. And if there is not anything different, then there is something very wrong. So, True faith and repentance results in a changed life. Deeds in keeping with repentance. For more study on that, if you're taking notes, Matthew 3.8 and Luke 3.8 and on will give you good material to digest. Another one, true faith and repentance is persevering faith and repentance. True faith and repentance is not a one-time decision made. It is an ongoing, daily denying of yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. This is probably one of the most difficult signs of grace to mimic. So, If you remember, Pharaoh's magicians were able to make sticks into snakes as well. This is one of the more difficult ones to mimic. Because persevering faith and repentance is nothing less than a miraculous work of God on your behalf. And people cannot do it long, falsely, without giving up. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. True faith and repentance is persevering faith and repentance. Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Perseverance and faith is required, and for all of God's true children, God ensures it will happen. 
Another one, true faith and repentance produces the beautiful fruit of a holy life. True, genuine faith and repentance produces the beautiful fruit of a holy life. Strive for holiness, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Or 1 John 2, whoever says, I know him, right? So we have this, I'm a Christian. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Brothers and sisters, I love the grace of God. I love the matchless grace and inundating love of God that covers all of my sins, but may I never take his grace for granted and ignore the warnings of Scripture that if I claim to know him and not keep his commandments, I am a liar. And the truth is not in me. True faith produces the beautiful fruit of a holy life. Another, true faith abounds in love for others, not hate. True love abounds in love for others, not hate. If you hate your brother or your sister in Christ, you are not a Christian. So another hallmark of the faith. Somebody says, I'm a Christian, but they're filled with hate towards their brothers and sisters for prolonged, persistent periods of time. That person, you have strong reason to believe, may not be a Christian, and it would be wise for them to examine their calling. 1 John 2, 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 1 John 3, we know that we have passed. So how do we know? How do we know we have passed out of death into life? Because we love the brothers. And we are not to love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. True faith and repentance produces fruit. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, bearing fruit, is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. True faith responds to sin by turning to Christ again and again and again. And again, true faith and repentance is a conquering faith and repentance. In all these things, you are more than conquerors through Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. And this saving faith is a contagious faith, more contagious than Ebola, more contagious than any contagion or flu you could ever think of. This faith is contagious. In other words, it doesn't come down through thousands and thousands of years throughout the ages, to come to you and get bottled up and stop until the Lord Jesus returns. It comes to you and changes you, and you go forth and you follow the commands of Jesus to make disciples of all the nations. So dear brother and sister, dear Christian brother and sister, so in here you're like, man, I knew I should have skipped today. I know all this stuff. I should have come another time. I got all this covered. I thought of you too. And if you're here and you are a Christian and you're seeing this and you're like, yes, 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 I got it. Thank you, Pastor, for reminding me. I just want to remind you and rejoice with you again. This gospel is the fountainhead of all of your other blessings that you have in Christ. 
your adoption, your regeneration, your perseverance, your promise that he will complete what he began, your fact that God is your father and cares for you and you don't have to worry about tomorrow because God will care for you. The fact that if you humble yourself, he will exalt you. All of the promises of God have the gospel as their fountainhead. And I pray that this is the fuel for your fire to serve Christ, to burn with your passion for Christ. As you serve in the homeless ministry or in whatever respective ministries you are serving the Lord for, that would be from the fuel of the gospel. Familiarity can breed a staleness in us. Familiarity can breed a staleness in our soul. And so, brothers and sisters, fight for joy. Fight for joy in reading your scripture. Pray with the Psalms. Open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. And you might be right now, this, this very moment, because of what I've all described as hallmarks of true, genuine faith, you might be feeling pretty condemned right now. You might be feeling like, man, I actually don't measure up to any of those. So I want to just take a moment to encourage you you might feel like, man, I am actually a failure. I've like, like big time failure. I've really screwed this thing up if I'm a Christian at all. Brothers and sisters, take heart. Because embedded in our gospel message is the reality that you are a big sinner. You are a massive screw up. But God but God, Jesus, is a bigger Savior than you are a bigger sinner. Our God's saving work is larger than the sin that you can commit. So, brothers and sisters, what's the answer then if you are failing? It's the same answer it was at the beginning. Repent afresh and turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus. So I hope I hope this has given you a better idea, the answer, your question, what is a Christian? There is the message, and then there is the response to the message. A Christian is someone who hears the gospel, God, man, Christ response, and turns from sin and turns to God, it's faith and repentance, and this results in a radically different life radically different as you obey Christ. And I suppose an equally important question to close with. What is a Christian and are you then a Christian? Are you in light or are you in darkness? Was your faith authentic or was it not? Don't delay this morning. This morning you can repent. This morning you actually can have assurance of salvation. And again, true faith and repentance. I love this. We watched uh, the movie Martin Luther, and he struggled with this often. Martin Luther feeling condemned before the Lord, and he would often stretch himself out and say, I am yours. Save me. When he didn't know what else to say, I am yours. Save me. And he would repeat it over and over. I am yours. Save me. That is the casting of that child out of the window. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father,
there is a beautiful deception and an ugly truth. And some in here may be deceived, but I pray that as you said, let there be light, that you would let there be light to shine in their hearts, that they would see the beauty and glory of God in the face of Christ. Lord, may you grant genuine repentance. May you grant faith this morning to those who would come. And may Christ be all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.